Father, it is such a privilege we have to open up your revelation, for you have chosen to disclose yourself to us in your word. And it is something that we do not take for granted, for it is there we get to understand who you are, how you have worked in human history. And to see that if you have worked in great and mighty ways in the past, that you will work in similar ways in our own life to lead us, to guide us, to change us, to bring glory to your name through whatever we do. And so it is our desire to be changed by the time that we have by coming to praising your name in song, by giving to you, by hearing your revealed word. And so we ask for this Holy Spirit to speak to us, to give us ears to hear and eyes to see. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please open up to Genesis chapter 49 as we continue to look at the life of Joseph. We've been in Genesis looking at the life of Joseph for about two years now, but that's fine. And we come to see that God has been working providentially throughout Joseph's life. And this really isn't a story about Joseph. It is a story about how God is bringing about His providential plans through Jacob to bring about the plan of redemption to His people. And so God is working providentially to ultimately fulfill those promises that He has made with Abraham, and to do so, He has to bring Judah into preeminence. And thus we have a long story about Joseph in which God is going to be using Joseph through the sins of his brother, sending Joseph into slavery, coming to a place of power under Pharaoh, helping to stockpile food for seven years of famine, and then bringing his entire family into Egypt so they wouldn't starve, all of which to protect the promised seed which would come through one of Jacob's sons. And so as we look at chapter 49, Jacob is about to die. And here we have Jacob in the few moments that he has left to live, blessing his 12 sons. And he's been on his deathbed since the beginning of chapter 48, to where he's mustering all his strength to have his last words to his 12 sons before he leaves this earth. And so these are Jacob's last words that he will ever speak to his sons. And there's a couple things that I want you to remember from the last time that we began chapter 49. And as this chapter begins to open up, the family is waiting who is going to be preeminent in the family. Because normally that comes to the firstborn child, to where there's a twofold blessing that gets passed on. There's a blessing of a double blessing, which is the inheritance, which Jacob has already given that to his son Joseph. And to bring that about, he adopts two of Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, to where they will have a permanent place as equal sons in the kingdom, to where two of the twelve tribes are named after them. So as this chapter begins to open up and now the entire family is there, they are waiting to find out who 
Or which one of the sons are going to be the preeminent one? And so we get to see that this is a very important thing to them. And so normally they would be thinking that it would be Reuben. And so look at verse 1. It says, There Jacob summoned his sons and assembled uh, yourselves together that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. More than just the here and now for them, but it's going to be in the future. And there are going to be um, elements of prophecy throughout this entire pack, um, passage. In verse 2, gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. And so he's telling them, pay very close attention to what I'm about to say. This is very important. And so to the son's ears, they're wondering who's the preeminent one. But it's interesting, as we're going to be looking at this one passage, many of the aspects sounds more like not a blessing, but a curse, because it doesn't sound too profitable for them. But Jacob never disowns any of, of, of his children. They are a blessing, though some of which will affect them in the here and now, but it looks down the quarter of time to where, how it will affect the nation Israel and how they will have a part uh, within that one nation. And so Joseph, uh, Jacob is speaking here as a prophet, and he's going to be telling his sons what the future will be like. And so Jacob will be saying to his sons, what I am about to share with you are about the promises that God has made in his covenant. They're not just random um, set of promises, but going back to where Abraham set Abraham apart for him to be a people, to where his descendants will be as numerous as the sands of the sea, that he would provide for them a land, a seed, and a blessing. And so this is all a fulfillment of what he's about to say, and it gets to be an underscoring of what these promises are. And so as we begin to look at chapter 49, as what I said last time, here we have essentially a 12-point sermon. And so um, it's interesting because when I first came to see how I'm, I was going to expound on this passage, I thought about maybe jumping over to chapter 50. But then as I began to dig into things, because a man of God's Word shouldn't be jumping over anything, that this actually became... The, the part in Joseph's life that gave me the most excitement. And why is this exciting for me? Because in, chapter, in verses 8 through 12, we get to see our risen Savior in all of His glory, in all of His majesty. And Scripture has a number of those places to where we get to see Jesus on display. Isaiah 53, Colossians 1, Revelation chapter 1, and many others. And this is one that sort of gets forgotten, I guess. And so as I come to this one passage, there's excitement in my heart to where we get to see Jesus on display, preeminent, supreme in all of His glory. And for God's people, that should put an excitement within our hearts because we get to see and understand more about who Jesus is and appreciate Him 
and love him all the more. And how that played out through God's redemptive plan throughout history for us to get a greater understanding of what went into the salvation that we have. And so, um, let me just read the passage for you for us to begin to then hang some things upon. Jump down to verse 3, if you would, with Reuben. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, uncontrolled as water. You shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed then you defiled it and went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let not my soul enter into their counsel, and not my glory be united with their assembly. Because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath for it is cruel. I will dispense them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches and lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares to rouse them, him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vines. He washes his garments in wine, and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine, and his teeth white from milk. And we'll stop right there. And so, just to remind us where we are, Jacob is blessing his sons. We started with uh, the sons of Leah, and we started with Reuben, the, the shameful son. He was raised as the preeminent one since he was born, so much so that the word preeminence is mentioned twice in verse 3. He was to be the one the chosen one. But because he brought shame and disgrace to Jacob for sleeping with his concubine, he is bypassed to be the preeminent one in the family. And then in verses 5 through 7, there's Simeon and Levi. Levi, perhaps one of them would be the next two in line to be preeminent. And Jacob tells them, you both will not be preeminent for deceiving Shechem, and then while they were in a weakened state, just slaughtering them. And so they brought about disgrace to Jacob and his family. And Jacob says, for your actions that you have done, you both will not be preeminent. And so we get to verse 8, and the question is still on the table, who will be the preeminent one? The right of preeminence is not going to son number one. The right of preeminence is not going to son number, number two, nor is it going to son number three, but maybe it will go to son number four. And so as we begin to look at verses 8 through 12, we're going to be seeing that it looks at the life of Judah. 
And this passage really breaks down into four parts. The first part we get to see is Judah's supreme preeminence that he has over his brothers. And then in verse 8, we're going to be looking at Judah's unified praise that is bestowed upon him in verse 8. And then in verses 9 through 10, we see Judah's ultimate power that he has. And then in the last two verses, verses 11 and 12, we get to see Judah's lavish prosperity. And so as this one passage opened, it's not necessarily, and we're going to be developing this aspect, that he thinks he's going to be the preeminent one. Just because his other three brothers got bypassed, in his mind, it's not going to be a guarantee. And so as we begin to look at this, I want to, uh, first of all, look at Judah's supreme preeminence. The preeminence of Judah stands out throughout these four verses. And first of all, and it stands out in a number of different ways. First of all, it is through the contrast to Judah and his other brothers. When you begin to see the flow throughout the entire passage, the tone of verses 8 through 12 is much different as compared with the exception of Joseph compared to the other brothers. It stands out. And here we see the formal preeminence that he has as the one in which Jacob is going to choose in his family. And so when you begin to compare what Jacob says to Judah and what Jacob says to his brother, Jacob will be clearly seen as the preeminent one. But not only that, not only from what the context says, we get to see what the far context says that has been setting Judah up to be the preeminent one. And so we get to see that, in, that God has been working in Judah's life to make him preeminent. I want you to think back, back in Genesis chapter 31 at the beginning of Joseph's story. We get to see Joseph, Jacob's favorite, But then we get to see that with the other brothers, they were actually a bunch of dirty, rotten scoundrels, one in which you would have nothing to do with, and we see the strife that they had with Joseph. There was envy, resentment, hatred that he had, that they had within their hearts, so much so that it leads them to leave Joseph in a hole in the ground to die. And so we have recorded in Genesis chapter 31, Judah's first words, as Joseph is thrown into a hole, he says to his brothers, it would not be smart of us to to kill Joseph because he's our brother, so let us not leave him there. And so as you're about to, to shake his hand of such an honorable thing that he's changing his mind, he says, let us sell him instead, at least we'll make a profit. That's how uh, Judah is introduced. And then when we get to chapter 38, chapter 38, as we said before, is sort of a chapter that's out of place um, in the life of Joseph. Because from chapter 37 to the end of the book, it's about Joseph, his um, interaction with the other family and with his father Jacob. But chapter 38 is about Judah himself. And there we find the story of Judah and Tamar, his daughter-in-law, 
where the question can't arise in a person's mind, why is chapter 38 included here? What does chapter 38 have to do with the life of Joseph? And one commentator mentioned that it has nothing to do with the life of Joseph, but it also has everything to do with the life of Joseph. Because we need to remember that with the life of Joseph, God is working providentially, though Joseph doesn't necessarily always see it. He is providentially that we're protecting, preserving Jacob, preserving the family, preserving Judah, who is going to be the, pro- the preeminent son, through which him the promised seed that God has promised to Abraham will come. So in order for that to happen, God has to do a work in both Jacob's life and Judah's life. And how do we know God has to do a work in Judah's life? Chapter 38. There we have one of Judah's darkest moments that he has in his life. As chapter 38 opens up, Judah has left the covenant people. He doesn't even live with them any any longer. He's living in another land. He marries a Canaanite woman. He's very far from walking with God and the people of God. That's how it opens. Then chapter 38 goes on to where he meets, though he does not know, his daughter-in-law, Tamar. He thinks he's a harlot has sex with her. She conceives a child. And so it's one of the darkest moments in his life. And so chapter 38 is given here not only to inform us how far Judah is from God, but it gives us a context for what is about to take place in chapters 43 and 44. Turn back a few chapters if you would to chapter 43. I want you to look at God has done a work in Judah's life. And we, and we are going to see, and, and what has he done is that he is beginning to make him a, the preeminent one in the family, and it's not going to be the result of anything that Judah accomplished. We know from verse 1 in chapter 43 that the famine was very severe in the land. The family was running out of food again, and Jacob does not want to send Benjamin to Egypt, which was one of the criteria that Joseph made that if you want more food, you need to bring bring Benjamin back with you. So much so that they keep uh, um, Simeon there as a captive, as a down payment, if you would. So when Jacob hears what happens, he not only grieves that he lost another son, but he also refuses to lose another. And I want you to look at verse 8. We begin to see Judah stepping forward with an option to save the family. Verse 8, Judah said to his father Israel, "'Send the lad with me, and we will rise up and go, that we may live and not die, we as well as you and our little ones. I myself will be the surety for him. That's important. You may hold me responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, let me bear the blame before you forever. 
For if we had not delayed, surely by now we would have returned twice. So Judah is saying that I myself takes personal responsibility. I will pledge myself if Benjamin does not come back. And so Jacob accepts this terms and he sends all of the sons out. And so they were about to starve. Judah sets himself as a pledge to keep Benjamin safe. And so Jacob needed someone to step forward for the family's survival. And so Judah pledges himself. And look at chapter 44, the next chapter over. Because they are there, they get the food, Joseph meets, meets Benjamin, sees that he's alive, and he's going to test his brother one last time as they are leaving. He puts his special cup in Benjamin's sack and unknowingly sends them out, and then he sends his people out and finds out that, gives the impression that Benjamin stole his cup. And so they are, they are thrown, they, uh, they are mourning, oh no, what is happening, what's going to happen to Benjamin? And in verse 14, I want you to see this. It's very important. Moses gives us a textual indicator that Judah is becoming preeminent in the family. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there, and they fell to the ground before him. And so when you, when you see this passage, why mention Judah first? Judah is the fourth brother in the family. The fourth brother is never mentioned first. The, generally, the, the, the first or second one, unless there's a reason. And the reason is going to unfold like this. When you see the events taking place, this is a story about Judah. This is a story that the promised one was going to be coming through him and how God is bringing about that plan of redemption through him using Joseph, using those situations that has taken place. Look at verse 15. And Joseph said to them, what is this deed that you had done? Do you not know that such a man as I can indeed practice divination? And so Joseph is going to be the spokesperson for the family. And he says this, so Judas, uh, Judah said, what can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? How can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, and we and the one in uh, who in possession of the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me to do this. The man in whose possession the cup has been found shall be my slave. But as for you, go up in peace in your father. And then in verse 29, Judah is going to pledge himself to be a substitute for Benjamin to be, to be in jail. And if you take this one also from me in harm is before him, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Now, therefore, when I come to your servant my father, and the lad is not with us since his life is bound up in the lad's life. When he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. Thus your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant our father down to Sheol in sorrow. For your servant became surety for the lad 
to my father saying, if I do not bring you back and let me bear the blame before my father forever, now therefore let your servant remain instead. Let me be the one to be thrown into prison instead of the lad so his father could survive. And then in verse 34, for how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me for fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father? Judah not only speaks up for the family, but takes personal responsibility as guarantor. He pledges himself to fulfill Joseph's request, placing his own life as a substitute for Benjamin. Why is chapter 38 at the beginning of Joseph's story? Well, without chapter 38, you would never know about the work of God and what he had to do in the life of Judah to bring him to this place. Judah did not rise to the occasion because of his own merit. But it's exactly the opposite. There must be a change in the life of Judah for him to display such a noble note of sacrifice. Some redemption in the life of Judah needed to take place And it was only through the work of God which made that change. So if we didn't have chapter 38, we would naturally conclude that it was through the result of Judah's performance that gained merit with his father to become leader of the family. And so Judah was completely unworthy of any kind of preeminence. He was unworthy of any kind of of honor. A matter of fact, God didn't even choose um, the relationship that he had with Abraham as being the most faithful out of all the land, but rather, but, but rather um, they weren't the most faithful because there are none that are faithful on their own. And so th- when you begin to look at Joseph's life and especially how he chooses Judah, It is not God finding someone worthy of fulfilling the covenant. It is about God's covenant making somebody worthy. And so this is about God's work in the life of those whom he calls to himself. This is about God working in the life of Joseph to where he was, bringing about a true faith in him, pledging himself, setting himself apart, beginning to show within the family that God is going to be using him to be preeminent because he didn't outperform his brothers to make himself worthy. This preeminence is a display of what God has done in his life. And so as chapter 49 begins to unfold, Jacob tells his son Reuben, you will not have preeminence for what you have done. Simeon, you will not have preeminence for what you have done. Levi, you will not have preeminence for what you have done. So Judah knows as he begins to hear his father tells his three other brothers of, that they will not have preeminence, he immediately would be thinking in his own mind, well, I guess it's not going to be me. Why? Chapter 38. Every sin, every failure, every, every aspect that he would ever think about 
would show that his ledger would be em empty for, to be worthy of any kind of preeminence. And so he had nothing to pat himself on the shoulders in any kind of worthy accomplishments. But rather, it was in spite of his sins, in spite of his faults, that God is going to choose him as preeminent. And why did God choose Judah as preeminent? Because he loved him and chose him for that. Whenever a God touches a life and chooses to use them, it's, they are chosen in spite of, not because of what they have accomplished or who they are. It begins at salvation. It's not because of what you have accomplished or done from God that makes you worthy to have a relationship with Him. You have a relationship with Him because of what He accomplished through His Son upon the cross. And our faith and trust in Him and turning from our sin makes us worthy. It's not anything that we have done. And so Judah's preeminence here is not a result of anything that Judah had done, but it's all about God's working in his life. And so go back to chapter 49, if you would. So that's the first area. We, we get to see the preeminence of Judah being laid out, and then as, as these verses begin to get fleshed out, being uh, clearly seen. But there's a second element I want to begin to have you think about. In verse 8, we begin to see Judah's unified praise. And so once again, he's expecting harsh words. Tamar is his fault. And so he's expecting if his brother got disqualified for what he has done and the other two brothers got disqualified, he's not expecting any kind of praise. And so he hears his name, Judah, your Brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. This is an aspect of the praise that Judah will get from his brothers. To have praise within, within the family, there's, there's an element that needs to be there. There must be unity in the family for the family to praise him. Because you cannot praise someone with any kind of hatred or resentment in your heart. There needs to be unity in the family for praise to truly take place. And he can only be praised by his brothers unless God has brought about unity within the family. Because think about what happened in Joseph's life back in chapter 37. Joseph had two dreams. And in his dreams, he dreams that his brothers would bow down in respect to him. That, that, they would, um, that he would have a position of authority over them. And that ate at them immensely. They resented hearing that. And there was no way in the world they would ever willingly bow down to Joseph. And so from this, it led to the brothers selling him into slavery, 20 years later needing food, going into Egypt where there was food, meeting the prime minister that they did not know was Joseph, and then bowing down before him. The bowing down is due to Joseph's rank, 
his position of power and his, uh, his affluence. And so bowing down here is very different than the praise that he, that he reserves. Because a person can bow down because you're powerful and you're afraid of them. And they're showing a sign of respect. But here, Judah gets praise from his brother, and it be, it's because of his, the praise that they had, they willingly bow down to him. And so this bowing is very different than the bowing before Joseph. And it's interesting because there is a prophetic aspect that is being brought out here. There's a play on words that many of the son's names and the blessings that they received sort of correspond to things. Judah's name means to praise. Back in chapter 29 of of Genesis, his mother Leah names him Judah because she wants to praise the Lord for giving her a fourth son. But this praise here is very different. It's not praise to the Lord, it's a praise to Judah. And so Judah will be praised due to the nature of his position. He will have a sign of authority and power over over the people's enemies. Your hand shall be on your neck of of your enemies and your father's sons. That has a future element. Not them, but your father's sons will bow down to you. It will give a glimpse of not just God's people, but the nations bowing down. And so they will have a praise for Judah. So there's Judah's preeminence, Judah's praise, But yet, as we begin to look at at this one passage, there's a prophetic element. Because with with prophecy, there can be many different layers. There's a near fulfillment, and then there can be a a far fulfillment with things. And so not only will Judah's brothers pray him, praise him in the here and now, but it looks down to where not only will the nation be unified, but also when the promised one will come, that he will receive praise. And so throughout Judah's history as a tribe, God has used them to be the preeminent tribe. Back in the book of Judges, as as we've seen uh, for, for Sunday school, in the book of Judges, Judah was the first nation after they settled the land to begin to clean house to get rid of some of the foreigners that, that were there. And so God, so they said, who shall we send out? And he says, send out Judah to go to war. The tribe of Judah, when they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, they were the lead tribe to lead the entire nation as they wandered around in circles for 40 years. But that was significant because they were leading the nation where they went. And not only that, it begins to look at the kingly period of the nation of Israel, that there would be a king that would rise up, King David. Israel's first king was was Saul. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was the people's choice. wasn't God's choice. He was the people's choice. But God's choice was King David. And under King David, the nation began to get unified, for before they were just a bunch of 12 loosely groups of peoples. 
and he unifies the nation, brings the nation to one of the highest points in his history, and fully makes them the nation of Israel. So much so that within the book of Kings and Chronicles, when other kings, whether it was the northern kingdom or the, or the southern kingdom, when they begin to compare themselves, like what 2 Kings 22 verse 2 talks about, when Josiah came to power, one of the good kings in the southern kingdom, it says that he did right in the sight of the Lord, walked in all the ways of his father, David, nor did he turn aside to the right or turn to the left. As a descriptive aspect of when a king came up, he was compared to the gold standard. David was the gold standard to be compared to for the kings. Either they did right in the sight of the Lord or evil in the sight of the Lord, or they either walked in the ways of David or did not walk in the ways of David. David was the standard in which the other kings of the nation were judged. And so we, we get to see that David here rises in, um, well, David, Judah, and Judah's descendants will rise in prominence, and we get to see that the kingling line will come to him. Not only is it that, but our thoughts generally go to King Jesus, that King Jesus will, come, will return one day to set up his kingdom, and it's going to be fully fulfilled there, that there will be a greater King David that will come to be the ultimate standard of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We see this brought out in Revelation chapter 4. There we have the 24 elders, 12 of them representing the 12 tribes and 12 uh, representing the, uh, the apostles. And there we have the 24 elders are going to fall down in verse 10 before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you have created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created." Revelation chapter 4 begins to show the bowing down and to praising of the lion of the tribe of Judah. It comes about because there is unity with God's people, that, that he is the one who is worthy to open the scroll. He is the one who is worthy to be honored, the one worthy to be worshipped, and receives the praise because he is worthy. And so this unity is based upon what Christ had done upon the cross and his exaltation by the Father. And this unity that we have with, with Christ makes us uh, unified, if, if you would, with the universal church. For the church is meeting around the world today, worshiping Christ, who is the head of the church. He is the one that unites us together. And so we could, we could be visiting a country not even knowing the language, but we hear the songs and we could be right there worshiping with him, not knowing a stitch, because we give praise together with the lion of the tribe of Judah. There is unity in the one who we worship. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6, there is one body and one spirit, 
just as you also were called into one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. So we have that common unity because of the lion of the tribe of Judah. But yet now there's, there's a third element. I want you to look at verses 9, 9 and 10. We have Judah's ultimate power being displayed in two images. The first image is one of a lion. Verse 9, Judah is a lion's whelp. From his prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches and lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares to rouse him up? This is a picture of ultimate power. The lion is the ultimate cat, if you would, because many of us like cats. Some don't, but many of us own a cat. Many, I probably should say the cat actually owns us, but they're, they're cute, they're fuzzy, but you learn very quickly they have claws that need to be trimmed because if you don't, you will learn that they have claws. And this is a picture of a lion, which is a huge cat. They act very similarly as the little kitty cats, but these are overgrown kitty cats. They're not domesticated. They may look beautiful to look at, but they're powerful. They're terrifying. A lion. You can go down to Cape May, New Jersey, which is one of the places where my family went and it was interesting, we were there at dinner time. It was feeding time for the lions. And this one lion was roaring. He wanted to get fed. If you know cats, they want to be fed. They will let you know. And he was pacing back and forth in front of the fence, roaring, wanting to be fed. His roar echoed. And you could tell that as he walked, he kept an eye on the little kids watching him. It just was a little, little side thing that if he had the opportunity, he would pounce. That's what lions do. They're beautiful. They're powerful. But they can be also terrifying at the same time. You never want to face a lion by yourself. You'll lose. And this is the image that Jacob is using to describe Judah here, that he is going to be a lion. There are three different uh, words for lion being used here. We have the word uh, lion's whelp. That's a young lion. The young lions are hunters. They're prowlers. They're stalkers. They bring the kill to the older lions. They're the ones full of strength and courage because they don't know any better. Um, the second word there is the word for a mature lion in its prime. And then the third word uh, for lion is an older lion. And Jacob is saying that there will be a descendant from Judah who will be like a lion. And the lion that is pictured here tracks down, seizes his prey, kills his prey, drags the prey up into its den and starts eating. And if you know anything about pets, when they're eating, you don't mess with them. And with this lion, you don't mess with him. And so we get to see his power. We get to see that he can be terrifying. This aspect of the lion 
of the tribe of Judah is first made known with King David. As King David begins to um, begin his reign, David is known for, well, Saul killed his thousands, but David killed his tens of thousands. He was known as a warrior. He took King Saul's place as a substitute to represent the people to kill and slay Goliath. He was there. And so he is the beginning of the lion of the tribe of Judah, Judah, a warrior. But then we know the greater King David, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is terrible. He is terrifying. He is powerful. C.S. Lewis um, states this in, in, in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the, the Wardrobe, where Beaver is describing Aslan to Susan. The beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, Susan said, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall rather feel nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Jesus is that lion of the tribe of Judah. He's powerful, and yet he could be terrifying. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5, and still some of Pastor Joey's thunder a little bit. But as we get to when we when we get to Revelation chapter 25, but people in our culture today they view Jesus completely wrong. They have a vision of Jesus that doesn't match who he is. Our culture likes to think of Jesus as a tame, likable Jesus, sort of like the baby Jesus in the manger. He's the lowly lamb of God, the humble carpenter, the meek and mild, who's always loving, always accepting, never confronts. Well, when he returns a second time, that is far from what he is going to be. Look at verse 2 of chapter 5. It says, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? And verse 4, John begins to cry that he found nobody worthy. And verse, uh, verse 5 says, And one of the elders said, said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. So he equates Judah to, uh, to, uh, to Jacob, and he equates his kingly line to David, who has overcome and asked to open the book and its seven seals. And they sang a new song, worthy of you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God that will reign. Here you have the lion and the ruler. There you have the brothers and the nations bowing down before the lion of the tribe of Judah. One more place I just want you to, to look at before we begin to wind things up. And, and uh, look at Revelation chapter 19. This is no meek and mild and timid lion when he returns. He is going to be one that will stalk down his enemies and conquer them and judge them and cast them into hell. 
Look at verse 11, Revelation 19. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed with fine linen, white and clean, and following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a, a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress with fierce wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has written, King of kings and Lord of lords, amen. That is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and you, no one dares to mess with the lion. Very quickly, I, I want you to go back to uh, chap, uh, um, Genesis 49. There's a second picture of a scepter. A scepter is that authority, that picture of, of the right to rule. He's powerful, but he has all authority to rule because he is king. And with a king, you bow to his kingship. He will never be impeached. He will never be put off his throne. He will never be voted out of office until Shiloh comes. It's interesting because there we have one of uh, a verse that is actually hard to translate, but I think the, uh, the ESV has the best translation. Until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Tribute is a gift to show gratitude. And one day when Christ returns, he will receive all the glory and all the honor that he rightly deserves. And we see this in Philippians chapter 2, that great kenosis passage to where he empties himself. He humbled himself as um, to become obedient to the point of the cross so that God would exalt Christ and lift his name above every name so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is going to be king. He has the power and the right to rule. But one last thing with the few moments that we have left, I want you to look at verses 11 and 12. We see Judah's lavish prosperity. He ties his foal to the vines and his donkey's colt to the choice vines. He washes his garment with wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. Here we get to see Judah's prosperity that he will have within his kingdom. It's a picture of the fruit of the vine, a picture in which when you begin to look at the symbolism that there are more, the vineyards are plentiful. There's more vineyards and more vines than what you know what to do with, so much so that you use, you use the, the vines to tie your horse or your donkey. There's so much wine that it's so plentiful that you use it to wash your clothes. And so wine was a sign of wealth, a sign of pros prosperity. And this is a picture of the coming of the lion of the tribe of, of, of Judah. And it's inter interesting. When Jesus begins to perform, 
his first miracle in John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, there's a wedding that takes place. They run out of wine. His mother says, we have no more wine, and he calls for large vats of water to be brought to him. And what does he do, as you know? He changes the water into wine. Don't miss for a moment that the people there did not take notice of that because of our passage. That the wine from the grapes are so plentiful. And so we get to see God's grace coming through the promised one, that he will reign, that he will, um, that he will prosper. He has the right to rule. And so as we begin, begin to come to the table this morning, that's the question. How are you with the lion of the tribe of Judah? He is preeminent. He has full authority. Jesus told his disciples, if you loved me, you will obey my commandments. And so that is a sign to where you either love him and you bow down before his lordship or you don't. There is a complete yielding to the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so we get to remember this when we begin to partake at the table. For the believers, and, and as the men come forward, it is a picture of a celebration that we have. For we did not work for our salvation. We did not accomplish it on our own. And, and God liked what we had done and granted us faith. But far from that, he granted us faith because he loved us. When we saw our sin, we turned from our sin. We repented from our sin. And we trusted completely in him. And because of that, there should be a desire for us to walk faithfully every day, that every moment that we try to do our best to bring praise and glory and honor to him. So men, come on forward as we begin to prepare our hearts. Father, we thank you that we can come and to remember what you have done. And it's interesting because we get to remember the broken body, the sacrifice of what the Lord had done. And it's a sign to where, because of his faithfulness, that he is highly exalted and now seats at your right hand, that he will one day return. And to, for, for God's people, this is a celebration of what you had done so that we can continue to pledge our life to bring your name glory and honor. So thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.